the culture of the 1800s and 1900s Russia could simply be explained by people in power giving the ability to rule over those that they have power over because of the trust that those who they have power over as recognizing that leaders will be merciful towards them. If their rulers, or in the 1800s and 1900s, the czars of Russia, in turn would shelter their people from harm, those in this area would endure great hardship and even to the point greatly suffer on behalf of the kingdom if they could trust and know that their rulers were merciful towards them. They were seen as children of the czar. Czar the father, as they would be called time and time again, whose divinely appointed duty was to feel his children's pain on earth as Christ did in heaven. And as a result of this relationship was the notion that any problem from a broken road to a wicked governor in another province existed only because the czar didn't know about it. And so different communities and villages had people appointed to, if there was trouble in the kingdom, they would have someone go towards the czar and express their their despair. Well, Nikolai II, the last czar of Russia, broke that sacred contract early into his reign. And in the spring of 1896, four days after his own coronation, a human stampede occurred during the celebration of him ascending to the throneship, where 1,300 people were trampled to death in the midst of a celebration of his own glory. And instead of immediately canceling the festivities, Nikolai II proceeded to remind his subjects that another ball the next day would be held in his honor. The czar, now at this point, would have been forgiven if he had just acknowledged that bad crowd control had occurred or they didn't expect the hundreds of thousands of people would have shown up into this field. But in his sin, he was merciless by going to the ball. And Nikolai II became Nikolai the bloody, the last czar, who didn't even mourn the death of his people. Russia's then formed new communist rulers inherited this same contract. Again, people would be willing to follow even in harsh times if they are protected by the leaders. Tsar the father was replaced by Dedushka Lenin, Grandfather Lenin. Lenin, even in the early Soviet times, there would be designees from different areas or provinces or villages who would travel to Lenin to inform him of their problems. But in In the 1980s, the Chernobyl disaster destroyed this covenant forever. What was known on the inside as a disaster, an awful disaster that would cost many lives and truly serve as the economic meltdown of a nation. There was a decision just days after to hold a parade of celebration on behalf of the glory of the kingdom rather than tell people to shelter indoors because nuclear waste was being poured out into the sky and honor the dead, the opportunity for leaders to sympathize or to show mercy towards their subjects was ignored in order to celebrate people's heritage. So instead of warning people of nuclear radiation pouring into the skies, the powers that be decided to go ahead with a planned parade. It was an echo of what was laid before them 90 years before when Nikolai the Bloody 
chose to dance at his coronation instead of mourning those who were trampled in his honor. Instead of sympathy and mercy, fear and pride were shown. Our passage from the scriptures this morning is the command by our Lord to his people to be merciful. After giving several other descriptions of his people's characteristics, he continues here in our text here to say that to be in the kingdom, you must be merciful. To be a citizen of God's own, you must have a merciful soul. One thing that is very clear in this section of Scripture is that our God is concerned with the heart of his people. And this is a subtle but striking difference to how we normally operate. We as believers or just everyday livers are often conditioned to be obsessed with our appearances. We're conditioned to be obsessed with how people think about us or how we are to act or what our reputation might be. But here the centrality of the gospel is placed primarily on being rather than doing. On the onset of his sermon, the first sermon that was recorded of our Lord, we have him talking about how his fathers, how his followers are supposed to be on the inside first as their pursuit rather than how they are to think of themselves on the outside. The gospel puts weight upon our attitudes rather than our actions. Isn't that incredibly unique into how we normally train ourselves or how we normally operate? If you just look a couple of verses above in verse 3, think about it. Christ doesn't call us to be poor, but poor in spirit. That changes everything in how you approach yourself and other people. It goes deeper than what we might even imagine. In verse 4, Christ doesn't call us to be glum criers, but to mourn our own sin. One is to show, another is to be a concern of the heart. Or in verse 5, Christ doesn't call us to be passively wimpy, but lowly in our heart's estate calm and understanding of his power and glory and on the sin that brought us to the point of great need. That's a, that's a different disposition. And here, or just above here in verse 6, Christ doesn't call us to be starving or without material things, but rather to be people who are hungry and thirsty for his righteousness. That's, that's truly what is called a different ambition altogether. And, and here in this passage, in verse 7, there's another subtle shift, a parallel to the aim of verse 3, that the man who is poor in spirit is also described, a follower of Jesus is described as someone who is merciful. All of these belong together. Jesus didn't speak haphazardly. He didn't accidentally place different beatitudes in front of other ones, but there is a flow or a progression and an increased intensity in his holy thought. You can't take these statements at random or build a theology out of them. You can't or shouldn't claim one of these verses and say, in 2020, we're going to live out verse 7, the year of mercy, because they all build on top of each other. Rather, Jesus is building a case, showing who those are and those who are not, captured by his love. And here he is saying that people who are captured by his love are merciful. So, a question. I have three questions for you this morning. The first question is this. Are you captured by the sermon so far? Are you captured by the love of God so far? Now, what I'm not talking about is my own sermon. You know, I even thought before I preached, maybe starting the intro off with an archaic look at 1800s Russia, maybe not the way to start a sermon, but are you captured 
by at least the sermon that Jesus is presenting us. If you are new, this is the beginning of what is called the Sermon on the Mount, where one of Jesus' sermons was recorded for us, and in it he explains who his people are, how they are transformed, how his own people are to act, are to be. His people are transformed living under the gracious rule of a king. And here he says that his people are living under the gracious rule of a merciful king, and they are to be merciful. And so in each of these statements, they should incredibly strike us. They should run deep into our hearts. They should go after your own heart, and you might wander away from this sermon this morning and go, was he talking directly to me? Yes, but not me to you, but this word to you. Any man can appear as if he's a citizen of a kingdom, but what does his heart truly show about the transformation that God gave him? What does his identity or the passport of the heart signify of who he belongs to? That's what Jesus is after, the actual heart. By exposing the heart, it allows us to live a certain way. Jesus is speaking here of a spiritual light. If anything, I hope that you recognize that the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount is not necessarily how you must live, but the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in particular, they are talking about how you must be. They're they're describing the disposition or the intention or the direction of your heart. And that's what Jesus is going after so deeply here. The Christian gospel places all of its primary emphasis on being rather than doing. Before he speaks to the actions of the Christian, which will happen after the Beatitudes, Jesus describes the character and the disposition of his people. A Christian has a certain character. You are a certain kind of person, and you are called to be a certain kind of person. And what these Beatitudes are exposing is the thing that you are being called to be is not naturally you. You know, we have so many things in society that just call us to be who we really are. And what the Beatitudes really expose is you don't want that. If I want to be these things, I need Jesus to transform me. To be a Christian means that you are not controlled by the world, or you're not even controlled by your own instincts, but rather you are controlled by Christ. Our faith that he gives us, it's meant to to lead us, to guide us, to control us. When you surrender your life to Christ, when you lay down your passion, when your desire and your soul are no longer your own, because you've given everything over of yourself to him. You give it all to him. A follower of Jesus is not just one who practically follows, but one who is changed by his own good worth. So our faith doesn't begin on the surface, but rather begins on the inside. This is why the New Testament describes someone who follows Jesus as being reborn or a new creation. When Christ controls your life, when you give yourself over to him, you want him to control everything. And so just from a applicable standpoint? Are there things in our life where we don't really give ourselves over to God's total control? Are there things in your life that you might hold on to? And and I might ask this a different way. Are there things that you give yourself to a ton of attention to that you wouldn't if Jesus was your Sunday school teacher and he could see your computer screen? Or he could look at the note that you're passing around or he could know the conversation that you're having with that other person? Is all of your life aimed to be in his control? You see, this is why the Beatitudes are so searching to us. This is why we might walk away from just this one text and go, I really feel like Jesus is talking directly to me. 
And friend, let the Bible speak that way to you. He definitely is, as these words were so true to the original audience, the followers of Jesus, may they be so true to you and so life-transforming to you. They tell us that as we live ordinary lives, we are able to declare all at the same time exactly who He is rather than who we want ourselves to be. As we look at this extraordinary portrait of the Christian drawn up by our Lord, we are forced to look at ourselves and examine ourselves and to ask ourselves these questions. So are you captured by this sermon that Jesus is giving? Are you in wonder or even in awe that the Lord of the universe wants your poor soul and wants you to receive mercy and wants you to be filled? And and even as he goes deeper and deeper and deeper, in calling out to you as you really are, are you amazed or captured by the sermon knowing that he is speaking directly to you, wanting to build you up in righteousness, wanting to summon you to his throne? Are you captured by the sermon? But in this verse in particular, in verse 7, can you grasp the deep, rich meaning of mercy? Secondly, on your outline, can you, can you grasp the, the meaning of mercy? Jesus says that blessed or happy Or those who are living the good life are merciful because they will receive mercy. Now, I think what's important about this passage is to understand what it doesn't mean. What this passage doesn't mean, merciful doesn't mean to be passive or easygoing. It doesn't mean to be merciful means that you overlook things or you choose not to see things, right? We all had friends growing up whose parents seemed to always overlook their faults or always allowed them to break the rules that our parents didn't allow us to break, right? That's not what true mercy is. The major belief today is that people are to be free-minded, open-minded, fully accepting of anything and everything, because as Pilate would say later in the New Testament, what actually is true? But as a direct contrast to that, what Jesus is calling us to be is not free-minded, but have the mind of Christ. We're saying we're not to be open-minded, but have His truth direct our paths, not to be fully accepting of sin, but rather to aim for sinlessness and to aim for Christ-likeness. It's not looking the other way, because true justice can't overlook truth in the pursuit of mercy. But rather, in being merciful, you have to acknowledge what is true on the pursuit of justice. Two reasons we can know that mercy isn't passive. First of all, we recognize that mercy isn't natural. It is not natural for anyone to be merciful, to be truly merciful, because our natural instinct is what? Ourselves. Like, if there's anything that I will take care of for the rest of my days, it's me, right? We all have that thing, maybe when we're camping with our kids and we run out of food and we all have that thought of like, well, like I'm bigger, so I need more food, right? Like they can get by a little bit. Or maybe we can find water and they're really resilient. Mercy isn't natural. The stress is not on the natural disposition of the heart. Jesus isn't saying these beatitudes by saying, look what you really have in common with other people or yourselves, but rather look at what you must have in common with Jesus. The the beatitudes would be truly unfair if they were about the natural person because some of us have characteristics or instincts that, that seem to be meek or seem to be merciful, but what if we don't have those things? Our gospel is not the gospel for those who have certain temperaments or characteristics because nobody has any advantage over anybody else when they're face-to-face with the Holy God. And what our Beatitudes do is it groups all of us together 
and places us in front of a holy God and say what is true and what needs mercy. And secondly, we also know that that mercy isn't passive or turning a blind eye because true mercy is only applied as a description of God himself. And God is not one who turns a blind eye to sin. God is not one who is passive towards injustice. God is not a God who just shrugs off when things don't seem to go his way and then change so that he can always seem to appear on top or in charge or like he knows what he's doing. When we're reminded of God and his ways, he, he never is anything but merciful towards his people. He never shrugs off sin or never turns a blind eye to wrongdoing. So whatever my interpretation of merciful may be, it must be true in light of the character and the attributes of God. So what is mercy here? Well, there are a couple of words that I'm using in your outline to help, commonly, canonically, and cosmically. Commonly, we might see the most helpful way to see mercy is to compare it with grace. In the Pauline epistles, so books like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, these letters or epistles written by Paul, Paul in the intro to those letters uses the greeting grace and peace, grace and peace to you, coming to you in grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a different way that he approaches people in the pastoral epistles. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to the book of First Timothy. Turn to the book of 1 Timothy. If you're in Matthew, keep turning to the right. It's beyond books like Colossians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians in 1 Timothy. So keep in your mind that in all of his other writings that he is greeting people, he greets people in grace and peace. But here, look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, where it begins in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And the same thing in 2 Timothy, he says. Have you ever caught that when you're reading the Bible, that he's always going grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, but then it's grace, mercy, peace. What happened there? Why does Timothy get more than the church of Galatia? But in his pastoral letters, we see that he writes this, and there is an interesting distinction implied between grace and mercy. The Greek word used for mercy in our text in Matthew is used 27 times in the New Testament through 26 different verses. And when you translate the Old Testament into Greek, so when they would translate it from Hebrew to the Greek language, that same word that's used in Matthew 5 verse 7 is used 170 times, the majority of which was used in the book of Psalms. And it was always used, and the the definition of it is an outward manifestation of pity with desire to relieve suffering. So what mercy is talking about is an outward manifestation of pity, having pity on someone with the desire to relieve the suffering. Now, grace in our scriptures emphasizes the free, unmerited aspect of salvation, whereas mercy, in a sense, is the application of grace to God's people. Grace is shown to us as being undeserving, while mercy is compassion to the miserable. We don't deserve it, yet he gives it. Grace is God's solution to man's sin. Mercy is God's solution to man's misery. Famous theologian John Broadus says that mercy signifies, quote, a pity for the suffering 
and help to the needy. Grace is getting what we do not deserve, and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So that mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve it. It's one thing to walk by someone and to have pity on them, but that's not showing mercy towards them. That's just having pity on them. Or a deeper way, in the heart, a merciful soul is displayed when you suddenly find yourself in the position of having in your power someone who has sinned against you. And this is finally your time when you can strike back, right? A merciful person doesn't say, I finally have my shot. Or the person who has sinned against me is now going to receive my wrath. That's the opposite of being merciful. Is there pity and sorrow toward the wrongdoer or vindictiveness? So that's the common way that we can understand mercy or grasp mercy. But there's also the way that we can grasp mercy within the Scriptures. Canonically, meaning within God's Scriptures to us, God's Word helps us illustrate this for us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you've got a Bible, turn back to the book of Luke. So in one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that third Gospel, Go to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Luke chapter 10, verse 30, where we see the great illustration of what it means and what it looks like to truly be merciful. God here is going to give an illustration through a parable for people to understand what mercy is. Luke chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him by the side, he, or when he saw him, he passed on by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where he saw him and passed by the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and saw him, and he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35, And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so Jesus then asked the question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he answered his own question, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to them, you go and do likewise. Now, mercy there is the same form or same Greek word that appears in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, where Jesus is illustrating what mercy really is. I see a need, I'm moved by that need, and I'm moved to meet the need. Other people were able to pass by or even willing to pass by either because they thought they couldn't help or because they didn't like what they saw and just went by. Here, the person sees the need and had compassion or is moved by the need, and then they move to meet the need. Mercy here does not mean only feeling pity. It means a great desire, an endeavor to do something to relieve the situation. But to go a little more broadly than how you might commonly understand it, or even to go more broadly into how you specifically see it in Scripture. I want you to grasp an understanding of mercy when you think cosmically about what this passage is about. When Jesus is saying, blessed are the merciful, 
he's not just using the illustration that he would later give. He's not just using the definition that you and I might understand how to do mercy by. But I want us to think cosmically about what Jesus is saying here about the merciful. The perfect and central example of mercy and being merciful is the sending by God, his only begotten son into the world in the coming of the son. Why? Because there is mercy with God on those who need him most. God had pity on those in sin who would need his mercy, who would need his love. It's in Jesus' coming that he saw our deservedly pitiful estate. He saw the suffering of our soul in sin. And in spite of the law breaking, this was the thing that moved him to action. It was love, the outpouring of love. And so the Son came and dealt with our condition. There, it's in God's love that there is no contradiction between justice and mercy. We see that, that God didn't turn a blind eye towards sin because what the Scriptures say is that Jesus would actually pay the price or would bear the wrath or would be killed in the place of those whose sins deserve to be on the cross. You remember John the Baptist, the forerunner prophet of our Lord Christ. It was his father who wonderfully describes the cosmic view of mercy to us. So, so turn maybe a little bit to the left in Luke chapter 1, if you're still in Luke. Luke chapter 1 in verse 78. Yes, there are 80 verses in all of chapter 1 of Luke. Let me just read to you a little bit above. This is Zechariah's prophecy. And his father, Zechariah, or Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, I'll begin in verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, meaning that John the Baptist would be called the prophet of Jesus, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in, in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It was him who understood what was happening by the birth of his own son, where Zechariah thanked God that at last the mercy that was promised to the fathers had arrived. He then thanked God that the Messiah would come through with this great promise. The gospel to us is the good news that our holy God did not abandon people due to their sin. He did not leave us just pitiful on the other side of the road, but rather He rescued His people for Himself through the sending of His Son, Jesus. And the life, death, resurrection of God the Son, Jesus Christ, Though men and women are separated from God in their sin, they are brought near to God or they are regenerated by God by the work of Jesus on the cross. The Holy Spirit awakens God's people to the reality and position of their sin. So you think of the first couple of things in the Beatitudes of how that awakens us to the understanding of who we are. It brings us low. It brings us to a sense of of meekness to where we can truly understand the mercy of God through the person of Christ. And this causes them to turn and repent from their sin to a life of faith in Jesus as their only hope and Savior. What the gospel is very clear on is that God is incredibly merciful, meaning that he had pity on those to the point of action, where the truth of the scriptures is that Jesus was sent by the Father in order to save sinners. 
that by paying for their debt on the cross, they no longer are in bondage, but rather they are now seen by God as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of the true son. And so from the beginning, Jesus's work was a matter of mercy. Do you see how the richness of what this text really, really screams out in? It is God looking down on man in his pitiful, sinful condition and having pity upon them. The sinner is shown Christ's mercy. And here our Lord said, blessed are, the, are those who are merciful. The grace that is there in regard to sin in general now becomes mercy in particular through God's pity. So question number one, are you captured by just the reality and the tension and the aim of the truth of these Beatitudes? But then second, do you, do you have a grasp on what mercy is? It is not merely being kind to, the words, to those around you, but it's seeing people in what is described as their pitiful state and working to bring change to their lives. Giving the example from the scriptures of someone going across the road and to help the wounds of those who had been beaten, we then have this cosmic, amazing view of it's not just given to us in earthly form, but rather the very Son of God was sent by the Father to show and bring mercy to those who were enemies of the Lord. True mercy is no, much, is no deeper than that, nor more rich than that. So then thirdly, how do you handle a text like this? Right? How do you handle it practically? How do you handle it spiritually? You can conceptually grasp the gravity of the situation, what Jesus is speaking about in total. You can even grasp the meaning of mercy, have pity on someone to the point of action. You can even see the nature of mercy being shown from an order to save man from the wrath of it, that his sins deserve. But what about this text? How are you supposed to handle it? How is it supposed to control you? How are you supposed to live in light of it? Well, I want you to see kind of a big issue within this text. See the issue of this text. Now, in some people's minds, this is a really difficult text to deal with because it seems like there is a problem, at least in half of verse 7, the, the second half of the Scriptures. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I'm betting that no other beatitude has been as misunderstood as this one. And the issue is, how do you receive mercy? Do you receive it because you are merciful? Or are you merciful because you receive mercy? Now, some may look to this text and suggest, if I'm merciful towards other people, then God will be merciful to me. If I forgive, then I will be forgiven. The, the whole idea of like karma is built within this, right? Where if we do good things, then good things will happen to us. Or if we please God, then God will be pleased with us. Is this true? Is there some kind of cosmic bargain going on? Well, no. The point is not that. I hope that you understand that you don't get merit for being merciful. Otherwise, mercy wouldn't be mercy at all. This is a problem where some people try to read this passage when they think that way, that I will receive God's mercy if I'm merciful. This is a problem in people's minds of why they don't recite or why they don't agree with praying the Lord's Prayer. Or in Matthew chapter 18, let's turn there, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is known for a lot of things. Negatively, it's known for church discipline that I preached about last month, but most people don't remember that Matthew 18 is also about mercy. Go to Matthew 18, verse 24. 
Matthew 18, verse 24. When you get, therefore, or verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, meaning a ton of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, meaning a lot less than what he owed. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay his debt. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and you should not and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what's the picture here? How are we supposed to interpret Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 through the different lenses of scripture that we've been given? You see here that you have a true master being God. He offers mercy to the servant, but that servant never really was converted. He never really accepted salvation that was offered to him. He never really asked for mercy or understood the mercy that was being given to him. He never confessed his sin, but rather he was living a life of phony mercy or a misunderstanding of mercy. It never worked in his case because he never admitted his sinfulness. And it's obvious because when he turned around and he had an opportunity to show mercy much less than what had been given to him, what did he do? He strangled a guy and put him into prison. So when we see the issue, we have to see this as a unique and special and large issue. How is man to be saved? Are we to be merciful and then God is merciful? Well, I want us to think theologically about this. I want us to think theologically. I think both contextually, meaning passages amongst passages, and theologically, meaning gleaning truth from passages, You should never say you are forgiven if you forgive. That's just the truth of the scriptures all over. But instead, happy are those who forgive because they know what it's like to be forgiven. We've often may have heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. Forgiven people forgive people. People who have received mercy are eager to show mercy towards other people because what we know we've caused cosmically received mercy from and by, we are eager to show mercy towards others. This verse is saying that if you are one who shows mercy, you give evidence of one who is receiving it. Meaning if your heart is a merciful heart, your actions are merciful actions. Theologically, if you or I were to be forgiven, if we forgive, then we'd never be forgiven. It'd be like saying if we would be saved if we didn't sin, Well, we'd never be saved, would we? We'd never taste heaven if it was based on our merit and it would never be as sweet as it's promised to be. 
But also, if you think that you are forgiven based on your forgiveness, or maybe the totality of your forgiveness, you have canceled the idea of grace altogether. You could never say that you are saved by grace through faith. You'd have to delete that scripture that says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And I I hope you see the beauty of interpreting Scripture with Scripture, the the truth that not only resonates from 5-7 on its own, but when you combine it with the reality and the truth that God has given us, people, the price of what it took for you to be forgiven is so much to where your life, as an extension from that, is a life of mercy. You see here that if you are a repentant person and realize your position before God, which was, verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, then in verse 7, you realize that you are forgiven of your sins, and so you are eager to be merciful or forgiving to others. I also not only want you to read this theologically, but maybe more importantly, read it contextually. So read this passage on its own, but then read it within the context of where it came from, meaning the very direct verses from this. Remember that the heart is the matter of what Jesus is going after. We are poor in spirit, meaning in my heart I have no righteousness on my own. We are mourners of the sin within us. As the result of the work of the Holy Spirit, I see my foulness in my heart and ways, and I know to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall ever deliver me? We are also meek in this passage contextually. We experience by the spirit, the true view of ourselves. We are not proud because we are not awesome and we have seen ourselves for who we truly are. But then we see ourselves, when we see ourselves, we strive for something not within us, but something beyond us. We grasp not for something that we have made for ourselves, but rather we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We long for it. We long for Him, Christ Jesus. Knowing where I am naturally, we race toward the right person and aim to be in the right relationship with God. And in His grace, He reconciled us to Himself by the work of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit regenerates our souls, gives us new life. And it says that because of this, we are filled. The satisfaction is eternally given to us. And what do you think the life of the Christian who knows and sees all of this now chooses to live like when he sees another pitiful man? What do you think the life of someone who is poor in spirit, mourns their sin, meek and mild, and hungers and thirsts for righteousness will do when he sees the beaten down beggar on the other side of the road? A merciful man will see the need and recognize where he once was and hold out the breath of life. So from this, do you see the context and its richness that develops within us by seeing this verse, by where it came from? Does it not logically follow if we see everything that we've seen in our life by Christ's work, that my attitude towards everybody else must be completely and entirely changed? If it is true, we should no longer see others as we might naturally see them. With a Christian eye, we look out and see wherever God has placed them in our lives as those who are under sin and in need of a Savior, as those who have been duped by sin and victims of their own natural heart. Here is where 
the call of Christ to be merciful actually goes way deeper in our own lives. It is seeing someone who is hungry and not only extending bread to them, but aiming to describe and tell them of the bread of life. It's going to someone who can't walk or talk on their own and calling out to them and describing to them the one who carries you all the way through. It's going to the one who is just beaten down and broken and say, my bank account was even worse than you could imagine, but look at what Christ promises. Being merciful is in one way having pity on another man, but then racing towards action, and it goes way beyond the physical price of caring for someone else. It's the banker who has someone impoverished come into his office and feeling this man is expressing like he is at his last day, and while helping him as best he can, also saying, let me tell you of the one who has a thousand cattle on a hill. It's the mother who has a child come into their home and go, I want to quit everything, and reminding that child of what Christ promises. It's the person who is at their last wit and literally wants to end their life and say, let me tell you about the life that can be eternally lived forever. Having mercy on someone is, yes, going for the physical needs, but the mercy that we are given by Christ is in the heart, and it changes our lives forever. So, friends, in this church, when we think about mercy, I want us to put it in the perspective of beholding the cross or having our eyes on the throne of Jesus, for it is on the cross that we see the supreme example of mercy Remind yourself of the one who is on the cross, the one who never sinned, not once, who never did any harm to anyone, who came and preached truth, grace, and who came to seek and save that which was lost. There was nothing in his life that was not perfect. Everything in his life was righteous, but there he was nailed upon that tree, and there he suffered the agony of the cross. And yet what does he say as he looks on the people who put him there? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Being governed and dominated by sin's wrath, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You and I are to become that because of what we have received from that cross. You and I are to look at those who don't know what they are doing, meaning they are pursuing unrighteousness, or they are pursuing the world. They are pursuing sin, and we are to have great pity on them to the point where we go to action. Be reminded that the voice of God is to be our song. In a moment, you and I will respond to this word by singing, a wonderful response, even though some of us don't feel called to sing at least out loud, but one of the stanzas in the hymns that we'll sing from the song in Christ alone says this in Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God and helpless babe the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live Christ had pity on us when he bore the wrath of God to satisfy justice so that we may receive his mercy. And so may the disposition of every Christian here, may the heart of everyone who is ruled by Christ be merciful 
for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. Our Lord, we call out to you as one who has shown us great mercy by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be our eyes and our ears, that you would capture us by the truth that is given to us in the Scriptures, that we would marvel at the the true meaning of mercy, that we didn't receive what we deserved, but you gave us what we didn't deserve, mercy and grace. Our Lord, may our lives be transformed to where we are not only receivers of your mercy, but we are confessors of your mercy, proclaimers of your mercy, agents of your mercy. May you give us opportunities to extend ourselves to those who are in great need, but may you give us courage and boldness to proclaim the good news for all of us who have received it know and can testify to the great richness of your love. And may we sing of it and work of it in all of our ways. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.